This episode of New Politics was released on the 14th of January, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the debate over the voice of Parliament is starting up and reviewing the future prospects of the Liberal Party. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, a mindless jerk who'll be first against the wall when the revolution comes. So we did end up having a short holiday break. We had a big year last year analysing all the big events in Australian politics and we're going to do exactly the same in 2023. And of course, we're expecting yet another big year in politics. Our new book, Diary of an Election Victory, it's selling very well. It got to number two in the Amazon bestseller charts just behind Bulldoze by Nikki Sava. So that's a good achievement for an independent publisher. We're coming for you, Nikki. (laughs) We are. And... (laughs) That's available through online booksellers or you can get a paperback copy directly from us at newpolitics.com.au and just a reminder that all of our Patreon subscribers can get a 50% discount on not just Diary of an Election Victory but all of our previous publications as well and thanks to all of our new Patreon subscribers. We picked up a few new subscribers over the holidays so thank you very, very much. We'll make it worth your while this year. So, David... A big year in politics coming up and a big year for new politics as well. It's a massive year in politics. What we've learned in Australian politics over the last 10 years is that anything can happen. Usually doesn't. It's usually about the opposite of what we expect. So it's going to be huge. The book has been moving terrifically. I'm very proud of this one. It's the feedback I've been getting is that people have been on the whole enjoying it. Even those on the other side of politics... I was talking to a liberal guy who read it the other day and he said actually it's a really good book and not as unfair as basically said would have expected. <laughs> so that that was pleasing that he didn't agree with all of it, of course, but he, he thought it was presented well. And, you know, that was a nice thing to hear. I haven't heard back from um, some of the people we are very critical of. Scott Morrison hasn't said anything about it, for example. Josh Frydenberg's been a bit quiet, but I'm presuming they're just considering their response. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. So it's still quite early in the year, but already there's a big focus on the voice to Parliament. The Prime Minister has started mapping out the timeline for when the referendum might take place, and it could be as early as August this year. The Indigenous Affairs Minister, Linda Burney, she's outlined what the voice to Parliament will look like and how it will work, but it doesn't seem to be enough for the Coalition, who make all the noises about supposedly being supportive of reconciliation as long as they don't have to do anything about it. Already, the National Party has said that they won't support the voice to Parliament. The Liberal Party are doing their best to create division, fear and confusion within the community, and all of this is being amplified by Conservative media interests. So this has still got a long way to go, but following on from the federal and Victoria elections last year, 
Could this be another case where the electorate ignores the Liberal Party and what the media is telling them and then goes on to support an issue that is in the interests of Indigenous people? Historically, the only referenda that pass have bipartisan support. The 1967 referendum, which was one of the most successful referenda that we'd had, I think it was 90% of people across the nation voted in favour of Aboriginal affairs being moved into the federal sphere, had bipartisan support. Both sides acknowledged that it was important that there was consistency, that Indigenous people were treated more fairly, and that it was in the interests of the country. We have an opposition or we have a Liberal Party that has, since about 1990 really, have decided that to a greater or lesser extent, the best tactic for them is to oppose no matter what. Uh, After John Hewson gets rolled, they start to be much more belligerent in how they do things. And so they've decided to oppose this referendum. Um, Now, it was relatively successful for Tony Abbott in a sense in that he becomes prime minister, but then there's no strategy after that. So I'd argue it's a very unsuccessful strategy, but you can't knock being elected to the government as totally unsuccessful. It pushes the buttons of several things. The National Party are very wary of too much Indigenous representation. Andrew G, of course, has quit the National Party because he believed that the voice is a good thing. And I, I think he's got one eye on his electorate, a lot of whom are Indigenous in Calais, uh, Calais, which is Orange Bathurst area. But I also want to be fair to him and say I think that, that he is standing on some kind of principle there, that the principle supports the politics in this case, a dying party perhaps, uh, an electorate that may turn on him and this matches his principles to leave. It's, it's a win-win-win for everybody. And I don't want to be too cynical either. It's not easy to leave a party, no matter how much you may disagree with them. He spent a career working for that party. So to leave it wasn't easy, and I'm I'm not going to judge him too harshly for it. It's quite possible. I don't know how likely, but it is quite possible that this referendum will get up without bipartisan support. I think you're right in that We know that the public have more or less stopped listening to mainstream media, particularly News Corp. Um, So we may find that uh, another historical precedent is broken in that we get a referendum passed without the support of the opposition. And this will be disastrous because it means that the opposition not only are in opposition but are completely irrelevant. So we can see what the strategy is for the Liberal Party. They're more than likely going to abstain on the vote for the voice to Parliament, and I'm pretty sure that this is so that they can claim that they're not actually against it, but they'll do their best to make sure that it doesn't actually happen. And there have been some suggestions that the Liberal Party is going to replicate their approach from the 1999 Republic referendum when the Liberal Party didn't have a formal position on the vote, but John Howard then proceeded to demolish the yes vote by creating fear, division, confusion... But I think the difference this time around is that, well, all of that was, was 24 years ago, the Republic referendum, and demographics have changed since that time. There seems to be a change within the community about attitudes to reconciliation and Indigenous affairs. The Liberal Party is now in opposition, and I'm not suggesting that 
because of these reasons, it's all going to be very easy or anything like that. It's absolutely not. This is still going to be a very difficult process to achieve a yes vote. But we can see that Peter Dutton's strategy on this is to appeal to extreme conservative elements within his party, primarily to shore up his shaky hold on the Liberal Party leadership. And we also have to remember that Peter Dutton walked out on the apology to the stolen generation in 2008. He always brings up sexual abuse and pedophilia within the Indigenous communities whenever he talks about the voice of Parliament, even though it's got absolutely nothing to do with it. And also, these are issues that he didn't seem to be too interested in when he was actually in government for almost nine years. So we can primarily see that he's being an opportunist about this. And just going back a couple of years, in the 2018 Liberal Party leadership spill, Peter Dutton said that he wanted an opportunity to smile more and show a softer side to his personality. And now that he's a leader, he's actually showing the bad side of his personality. And if he wanted the opportunity to smile more and show a softer side of his personality, well, this is the actual time to do it. This is the time to show some leadership on some broader issues. But This is who Peter Dutton is. He's the bad guy. He's as divisive as John Howard was, as divisive as Tony Abbott or Scott Morrison. He's had the opportunity to change, but it seems like he just hasn't got the ability or the desire to do that change. No. It seems to me that the argument for the voice and its structure must be pretty strong because all he can do is keep rabbiting on about the lack of detail. Now, there's a 290-page report plus three preliminary reports, one of which was given a foreword by Ken Wyatt, who was a prominent Indigenous Australian, who was a member of the and a, a representative for the Liberal Party. To say that there's no detail is disingenuous, of course. And, of course, he's supported by a press who won't really say, well, there's this 290-page document which lays it all out. Marsha Langton, one of the authors of the report, has written a, a very good article in last week's Saturday paper spelling it all out. And Toomey, the, probably Australia's foremost constitutional expert, has uh, spoken on, on The Voice and the details that we need to know before the referendum as opposed to what happens after the referendum. And one of the huge tactical mistakes of the Republic referendum was that it tried to ask two questions at once. Paul Keating pointed out they should have asked the public, do you want a Republic? Got the yes vote then, most likely. And then Right, let's, what models do we have? And then you could have your arguments over what works best and what is most appropriate for the Australian people. Instead, you had the Republicans arguing over each other whether it should be via appointment or basically just a name change or an election so that people are nominate and there's an election for Governor-General or would be President then. With The Voice... They've basically said, this is what we think we're going to do, but we'll sort it out once the people have decided whether they think this is an appropriate thing. And of course, I'll be fair too, there are arguments against it. Maybe it's not the place to start. Maybe we should look at forcing parties to have more Indigenous representation in their policies rather than a voice to the parliament, a voice to individual members. I'm not saying any of these are better ideas, by the way. I'm just saying that these are things that you might argue. You might think that it's better to have a third chamber, as Barnaby Joyce keeps arguing that the voice is a third chamber. Maybe it's better to have a quota uh, of Indigenous representation. There are all these other options that the Liberal Party aren't bringing up, which is really interesting. They haven't thought them through. They don't want them clearly. 
They just want to make sure that they defeat Labor and we won. Well, it's almost reached a point where that's what it's all about for the Liberal Party and the National Party at the moment, just to defeat Labor. And that's not what the whole idea is. The voice to Parliament is actually quite a simple proposition, as Anthony Albanese and Linda Burney have been suggesting for some time. It's a constitutional amendment that asks for Indigenous people to be consulted about laws that directly affect them. It's not to actually amend laws. That would still be up to Parliament to decide on whether they can do that or not. It's not to actually create laws. Again, it's up to Parliament to do that. And my main criticism of the voice of Parliament is that it probably doesn't go far enough, but I'm also a realist. If it's far too radical, it's not going to be accepted by mainstream Australia. And you referred to some of those reports before as well, and I've had a look through them. They're actually quite substantial. There are three major reports that have been provided to government. There's the Indigenous Voice co-design process, there's the final report of the Referendum Council, and then there's the report for the Joint Select Committee on Constitutional Recognition Relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People, and that was co-written by Labor's Patrick Dodson and Liberal Party's Julian Lisa, and he's the same guy that's now saying that he wants to see more details, even though all the details are contained in the same report that he wrote. And here's the previous Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken White, and what he has to say about it. We've got to think about the voices of Aboriginal people because the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody in 1987 made similar commentary about listening and working and deciding with Aboriginal people. The Uluru uh, Dialogue says the same, but the other more important one that our government at the time commissioned was the voice. And they, there's four pages that if people read them, they would understand the detail. And it's pages 15 to 19, which spells out the principle-based approach, the scope, how does it work in practice, and what are the steps do we need to do to get there? And then the relationship with government, which doesn't impinge on the sovereignty of the Australian Parliament. Now, I took this report to Cabinet twice. So people who were ministers at the time would be fully aware of this report and what is obvious with the National Party is they have not read the report and have not given an Aboriginal voice to Parliament an opportunity to be aired and to be listened to and to be implemented. So the proposals for the Voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement, they were presented to Cabinet twice before the last election by Ken Wyatt. Peter Dutton was a member of that Cabinet and so were many other Coalition MPs who are now coming out to say that they need to see more details. Maybe they've got collective amnesia or maybe they were just smoking cigars or drinking whiskey in those Cabinet meetings. Barnaby Joyce probably was. But the coalition was an incompetent government. There's no question about that. And it seems that they received all the information about the voice to parliament while they were in government and just decided that it wasn't even worth looking at, even though it was presented to them in cabinet, not once, but twice. I don't think that this will wear well in a lot of Australia. And I think, too, that the hope that Australia remains casually racist is fading now, I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to say, oh, we fixed racism, yay, you know. There's still racism in Australia. The leader of the opposition, for example, may not believe he's racist and, in fact, may not be, but he certainly comes across that way. And you're going to get people who are mistrustful of any of this stuff for the wrong reasons. 
and I don't want to tell people what their experience of racism is or isn't, by the way. But I think that the racist overtones that may have stopped this type of thing, even as late as two years ago, have mellowed somewhat. And that there are people who, even if they are racist, are going to see the value of such a thing and vote for it because the old racist arguments of, oh, the Indigenous community can't be trusted to run themselves, which is the Australians' big thing. A Liberal Party that has had, what, five leaders in 20 years or something points to a diverse group of individuals who aren't organised in any formal way and say, oh, you can't run yourselves. (laughs) It's, It's comedy. It's a really bizarre thing. And I think that they've overplayed their hand and it may cost them. And if it doesn't cost them in the short term, in terms of it doesn't get up, it'll cost them in the long term as the generations that thought in certain ways die off and newer generations come through. And if I was in parliament, I'd be very careful to be not on the wrong side of history. Well, I might be hurting the Liberal Party in the short term and the long term, but just going back a little bit to Anne Toomey, she's the constitutional lawyer that you referred to. So the constitutional changes are going to be simple and flexible, which is what you'd normally expect from constitutional change. Again, I don't want to press this too much because I think in the end, what are you voting on? It's not the detail of what Parliament's going to do in the future, okay? because that's the sort of thing that you vote on. At the next election, for example, whether you like or you don't like whatever bills come through, okay, what you're voting at in the referendum is the basic principle. You're putting in a thing in the Constitution saying there shall be this body, right? It shall be able to make representations to Parliament. So can we make sure that our Parliament and our executive at least have the opportunity to be better informed on Indigenous matters that's ultimately the question that people are deciding from the constitutional point of view in a referendum. And then the rest, we trust to the democratic process that we have with a parliament. And if you don't like the way they construct the voice, how it's comprised, what it does, then you can vote in the next election for someone who's going to change that. And that's your normal democratic process because there is that inbuilt flexibility there. It's not frozen in the constitution. So it is simple and flexible, but it's not stopping the voice of Parliament being misrepresented by the Liberal Party and Conservative media interests. And that goes back to that political opportunity. And we can see that they're seeing a political opportunity for themselves rather than what might be in the public interest. And there have been some suggestions that this is going to cost the government and Anthony Albanese too much political capital and take up too much effort. But government should be able to do more than one thing at a time. They should be able to do quite a few things at a time. And I know it was a little bit difficult for the previous government to do more than half a thing at a time, but this is what (laughs) we should expect from government. They should do all of these things at the same time. And this was an election commitment from the Labor government. Anthony Albanese clearly said that this is what he would do if he won the election, and the Labor Party did win the election, and this Mm. is how the democratic process should work. And, And also, we're still within the first year of this term of Parliament. It's 2023. There's all of 2024 to go, and half of 2025 as well. Get it all over and done with by August this year. And the Liberal Party has to decide whether it wants to be a constructive part of this process or continue making itself irrelevant. They're in a bubble. And I know that our critics are going to burst out laughing when I say that. Hello. (laughs) But they're listening to that small 
group of people, that shrinking group of people saying that this is where you will lose people unless they start to look a bit more broadly. And I really don't believe that the Liberal Party, which has an okay record on Indigenous affairs, uh, William Charles Wentworth IV was always a very strong and prominent advocate for Indigenous affairs, as was Paul Hasluck. It is the Liberal Party that uh, appoints the first Indigenous senator to the federal parliament with Neville Bonner's appointment in 1977, for example. Well, there's Malcolm Fraser and there's Fred Cheney. Yep, I forgot about Fred Cheney. And, of course, Malcolm Fraser gets smoking ceremony when he dies, a very, very rare honour that you cannot ask for. I don't want to say that they've been a perfect (laughs) example of how to deal with Indigenous people from the get-go, but they do have some record of good in there, mixed in with all the the other stuff, as does Labor, uh, as does probably the Greens are the most consistently positive, apart from the uh, Indigenous parties that crop up from time to time. The Liberal Party could be trying to stand on that record and supporting the voice. You know, this is this is our step forward from Neville Bonner, from Fred Cheney, from W.C. Wentworth, from Hasluck, from Fraser. Because they've got to be careful with Fraser because he leaves the party in disgust. <laughs> so bringing up Malcolm Fraser is problematic for him. And they were all happy to see him go too. He was disgusted with how poor its ethics had become under Howard. So bringing up Fraser is very problematic for the Liberal Party. You know, it's almost seven years there that they can't rely on because all you'd have to do is say, yeah, but he left you lot in disgust. You can't then say he did a great job. They have to be, I think, more positive. Oh, well, I think that everyone needs to be fairly careful yeah. about this and I think it will take some deft political management by all the key players and that includes Indigenous groups, the Minister, Linda Burney, the Prime Minister, the Government, the Opposition all the people of goodwill that want the voice of parliament to succeed. But based on Gen Z demographics and voting patterns and the makeup of the electorate in different parts of Australia, based on what we know now, a referendum probably wouldn't pass in Queensland or Tasmania, but they would still end up being four out of the six states needed to pass the referendum on top of the majority of the votes across Australia. And I'm not saying that this is what will happen, this is just some speculation, but it could end up being a case of the Liberal National Coalition actually wedging itself due to its ineptitude, its intransigence and blatant opportunism, which ends up helping the yes case, or it could end up being like the... 1988 referenda where four decent constitutional changes were easily defeated mainly through the work of Peter Reith and we've been asked well what happens if the referendum question when it's put to the electorate is actually defeated and there's been 12 years of work that's been produced by Indigenous people all around Australia it's mainly been a process of depending on the goodwill of non-Indigenous people and the goodwill of Parliament only for it to be thrown back into their faces by Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott and ignored by by Scott Morrison. So if it is defeated, that's a terrible shame and it's a sad indication of where reconciliation sits in Australia, that it can always be hijacked by conservative interests. The voice to parliament could actually still be implemented, but it wouldn't have constitutional recognition and it would be at the behest of the Prime Minister of the day and future governments could decide to remove it, as John Howard did in 2004 with ATSIC and that was also supported by the Labor opposition at the time. And 
the promise in 2004 was that ATSIC would be replaced with something new, but then that never actually happened from within government. But the upshot is that this is what Indigenous people have asked for. And sure, there is that riffraff ultra-minority led by Jacinda Price and Warren Mundine. They're opposed to it. And there's also those issues that you referred to before, David, whether a treaty should come first, and that's something that was promised by Bob Hawke back in 1988, and the, the state of Victoria is actually commencing treaty negotiations with First Nation peoples this year. So everything is possible if you can imagine it happening. And I'm still confident of the voice to Parliament succeeding at the referendum, but it might be a little bit of a rocky road to actually get there. Every dirty trick is going to be pulled out. I expect that you'll see on shows like Current Affair, the parlous state of Indigenous settlements in Northern Territory. Look at how these people, and it's they're buying alcohol and it's all pedophilia and it's all assault and petty crime. And, and next up, we've got a constitutional expert on the voice to Parliament. That type of subtle media management where you're natural tendency is to watch the story which may or may not be true and it doesn't matter it's what you perceive to be true is is the issue i am still confident that it will get up i think it won't be a unanimous state thing but it will be a majority of states i think i think it might be close in places like western australia and i think it might be close in new south wales and i think queensland can end up surprising us by with polling showing and hello to all our Queenslanders I'm not saying that you're always naturally going to vote against but with polling showing that it's Queensland at the moment is opposed Queensland's still a fairly strong Labor state and Anna Palaszczuk remains pretty popular she's lost popularity but she's been in what four terms now if you haven't lost popularity you've either not been doing your job or you've been doing a pretty terrible job So Queensland could surprise. Tasmania could surprise too. There are other issues in Tasmania with Indigenous people that could push it anyway. It could be that it's the smaller states that push it through and the two larger states that miss out, which is why referenda were set up that way. Uh, The smaller states were worried that you just get the bulk of population in New South Wales and Victoria voting in their interests and everybody else miss out. So they set it up so that it had to be a majority of states just to make sure that it was fair. We can't know till we know, of course, and it's going to be interesting. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. It's like I'm dreaming. And there's been a few issues that did arrive late last year and they will affect politics over the next few years, so we're discussing them now. 
And there was that Liberal Party election review that was released just before Christmas, so maybe they didn't want too many people reading it. And it reads like a document of paranoia, a wargaming plan to attack the Teal independence in future election campaigns, and suggests that the party needs to move even further to the right to differentiate itself from the Labor Party. Now, it could actually be a case where the Liberal Party doesn't know how to prepare a good election review after it's lost an election. Labor's losing election reviews are generally more concise and definitive because they've actually had a lot more experience in those losing election reviews in recent times. But based on what's in the Liberal Party election review, they might be in opposition for some time to come. It was strange. Their initial reports were actually quite honest and quite good. And then you get Brian Lochnane and Jane Hume coming through and saying, oh, the problem was we weren't far enough to the right. They blame Scott Morrison too much, I think. Certainly he deserves a lot of the blame, but there were systemic party issues that makes him leader, that keeps him leader, that allows open and blatant corruption. The selection of candidates, one might say, including Jane Hume, but I'm not going to be nasty and say that, they didn't have the quality of candidates that the Labor Party had. We've said before that the 2023 opening cabinet of Albanese is one of the three or four best in the Australian parliament. When you look at the lawyer, the quality of Dreyfus, a foreign minister, the quality of Penny Wong, Katie Gallagher, these are first-class people doing, so far, first-rate jobs. All political heroes disappoint. We've been remarkably free of scandal. And you can bet that News Corp are putting a lot of resource into trying to find this type of scandal. But none of this has happened. It's been quite remarkable. Again, I'm not saying it won't happen, but Lord Atkin, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's something that we must always remember. On one thing that we've emphasised in the past is that you should never underestimate an opposition, irrespective of how poorly they might be performing. And that's because there's always events coming through that can change the dynamics of politics and who knows what's going to happen in the future. But even still, there needs to be some talent coming through the ranks. And the Liberal Party is a divided party. Maybe it's more of a splintered party at the moment. That election report prepared by Senator Jane Hume and Brian Lochnane. And if you don't know who Brian Lochnane is, he's the long-term Liberal Party campaign director. He's also the husband of Peter Credlin. And the big focus, which I found quite surprising, is the attack on the Teal independence in seats that were previously held by the Liberal Party in Liberal Party heartland areas of Sydney and Melbourne, and nearly all of those seats have gone. And their strategy is to highlight the voting records of the Teal independents in Parliament and indicate how often they vote with Labor and try to paint them as Labor Party stooges. And this is all a little bit odd because it's the same strategy that they implemented at the 2022 federal election and they lost all of those seats. And they might be trying this same tactic and you know, hoping to win maybe one or two of those seats, but I can't see them winning all of those seats back in the one election. And we also got to be wary that they might actually be having a case of they're not going to reveal their true plans for how they want to reclaim those seats, so they're just putting this out in the public to make people think differently. But 
based on how they've behaved since their election loss in May 2022, they've behaved like a hybrid of a British Conservative Party or the US Republican Party. It's reactionary, it's nasty, throwing in a bit of soft and hard racism, it's inept. And it's really hard to see how this process is going to get the Liberal Party back on track. The Teals, and we interviewed some of them. And Well, I'm pretty sure that those interviews that we did with them helped them get elected. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to the people of Kooyong and North Sydney for listening to us. But in all seriousness, they won Liberal seats because of their policies, that they were impressive and articulate and good interviews and engaged with their community was also a a big part of it. But environment was very important and the Liberal Party are just refusing to see that this is an important thing that they need to really come to terms with. Honesty and integrity in public life. They didn't want corruption. Dave Sharma's alleged insider training buying shares in a drugs company after it had been decided at Cabinet but before it was announced to use that company's vaccination in the seat where there are a lot of traders, where there are a lot of people who are very aware of the law and of the ethical implications because their livelihood depends on it. It was just not only dishonest but silly. It's insane. Instead of saying, right, Allegra Spender should have been voting for us, should have been volunteering for us, should have maybe even been our candidate. Why did she go as an independent? Or Kylie Tink? Or Monique Ryan? All of them admitted that they had been Liberal voters in the past. Well, I guess it was a case where the Liberal Party didn't suit their needs as a potential politician at that time and decided to make those choices about that. But I think that Generally, political parties usually do need to have a few election losses to learn the lessons that are being given to them by the electorate, and that's essentially what happened to the Labor Party during the Howard years, and it's also what they learnt after the 2019 election loss. You just can't keep providing the same thing from opposition to the public and hope to win elections in the future. So the Liberal Party needs to change, but they're suggesting that the change they need to make is to become more extreme and more right-wing, and for as long as they continue to do this, well, they're totally missing the message. And if you want further proof of not getting the message, it's been suggested that Alan Jones and Catherine Deeve should go over to the South Australia Liberals and teach them how to be more right-wing and more conservative. And for a start, South Australia is not that sort of state. And Alan Jones really is a has-been as far as his political influence is concerned. Catherine Deves was a failed candidate in the seat of Warringah and ran that anti-transgender campaign in the last election. That was a complete failure. So if these are the people that the Liberal Party is looking at for the future, it's not looking good for them. They've got a federal leader who lacks judgment. Just the other day, Peter Dutton lauded George Powell the day after he died and then started taking pot shots against Daniel Andrews and the Victoria government as if they had anything to do with that court case where Powell was convicted of child sexual abuse. And Peter Dutton always refers to child sexual abuse when he's talking about the voice of parliament, but he didn't actually say anything about it when he's talking about the Catholic Church. And A few people have also pointed out to us that it's not good for democracy if a mainstream party 
keeps losing elections. And the Liberal Party's actually had quite a few election losses in recent times in Queensland, in Victoria, Western Australia, South Australia, the ACT, Northern Territory. Then to top it off, they lost the federal election last year. But I think that losing elections all the time, that's not good for the party, but I don't think that's actually the problem. There are swings and roundabouts in politics and eventually a major political party returns to office. So I don't think that's the actual problem itself, consistently losing elections. The problem for any political party is if they're not viable or if they're not effective. And in their current state, the Liberal Party is not viable, they're not effective. And unless they're prepared to make some significant changes, they're going to be ineffective and unviable for some time to come. You need a strong opposition. You need a strong government. Obviously, I don't think it's a secret to say we'd prefer strong government of one stripe as opposed to the other stripe and a strong opposition, the opposite. But nonetheless, oppositions should genuinely hold governments to account, allowing good policy to happen unhindered, but making sure that bad policy is picked up and fixed. And that's how the system's designed to work. We haven't had a good liberal opposition for a long, long time, partly because of the time they're spending government, but also partly because oppositions have to oppose, but you shouldn't just blindly oppose whatever goes up. Everything should be done in service of what is best for the country. And Labor, from time to time, bring in policies and do things that we don't like. And that's fine. You know, there's all kinds of compromises and deals and things that have to be worked through for things to to get up properly. Liberal Party occasionally does things that we do think that's reasonable. And that's fine too. Again, they mightn't want to do it quite that way. But after speaking to all the people involved, uh, maybe we can do it this way rather than the way we would prefer. But an opposition that continually just obstructs ends up in the spot where the Liberal Party is now pretty much dead at a state level and dying at a federal level. Last time this really happened was 43, when they were the United Australia Party, and they had to break it down and work out what it was their values were. And Menzies said, essentially, our constituency are those people, small entrepreneur, the middle manager, the quiet, the forgotten people, those that in Menzies' rhetoric were left out of the public debate. And this, of course, was genius politics. To, to come back in three elections from nowhere was quite extraordinary, especially against the Chifley government, which was a fairly popular and a very capable government. And the Liberal Party over the time has forgotten that, that ostensibly at least they were for the emerging middle class. Of course, they then spent the next 40 years destroying the middle class, which is their problem. And this is why I think partly why they find themselves in the trouble they are, that those who might have voted for them, who are aspirational, have nothing to aspire to. And this is what any number of reports, till they address the deepest fundamental questions, who are we and who do we represent and how do we represent this philosophically, there'll be nowhere. If it's all just about this Trumpist getting power, getting in and just keeping the other mob out. They have no future and the public will fall for it once, maybe twice, but they won't fall for it again. And that's what the party has to come to terms with. And by the looks of it, they're not prepared to do that. 
That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.